It's the Code St. Luke podcast, where you'll hear interesting topics and people brought together through the Code St. Luke Public Library. Here's the show. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Kathy Diamond of the Eleanor London Code St. Luke Public Library here once again with a short monthly book talk. In pre-pandemic times, which is now almost a year ago, hard to believe, we used to meet in the library one Monday morning a month to talk about a book. And until we are able to do so once again, this telephone recording will have to suffice as a replacement. I think we are all looking forward to the time when we can safely meet again in the library with coffee and cookies to share our thoughts about a book. Okay, so now on to today's selection. The book that I have chosen to speak about this afternoon is a novel by Canadian author Essie Edugian called Washington Black. Miss Edugian says that she is curious by nature. Her examination of life through a historical and racial lens has resulted in novels about the Black experience in Europe during the Second World War, which was her Scotia Bank Giller Prize winning 2011 book, Half Blood Blues, as well as her debut novel about racism and mental health in 1968 era, Alberta. Her third novel, Washington Black, tells the story of 11-year-old Washington, or Wash, as he'll be called in the book, Black, a slave on a Barbados sugar plantation in the 19th century. His master is Englishman Christopher Wilde, who is obsessed with developing a machine that can fly. When a man is killed, Wilde must choose between his family and, sli- and saving young Wash Black's life. And by this time in the story, young Washington Black is the chosen assistant of his master, Christopher. And this choice results in an epic adventure around the world for Wash. How did Edugian come to write this book? I didn't initially set out to write a slave narrative, says Miss Edugian. Several years ago, I came across a real-life story about the famous Tichborne case that happened during the Victorian era in England. I started researching it, reading about it, And I found this completely absurd story where Sir Roger Tichborne, a young aristocratic man from a wealthy household, was shipwrecked and missing at sea off the coast of South America. His mother refused to believe that he was dead and she put notices in newspapers all around the world. A man in Australia answered and claimed to be the missing man. And so this mother sends a man named Andrew Bogle, 
who was a former slave from a Jamaican plantation and now a member of the Tichborne household. She sends this man, this servant, I guess one could call him by then, down to Australia to identify this man, to see if really was he the missing son. So Miss Adugan, the novelist, says that she started to think about what this Andrew Bogle, this former slave, who was sent to Australia to see if the this man in Australia is really telling the truth, what his life might have been like to have been born a slave and raised in brutality, in slavery, with a sense of this is one's destiny, and then to be suddenly wrenched out of that life to live in a completely different way and to grapple with a completely different society and set of rules. And that's where my interest in this topic came from. So the basis of this novel, Washington Black, is based in this real story that the author, Miss Adugan, became interested in and created her novel around it. She says, I'm constantly researching and trying new things when I write. I do read and research widely before I start writing to figure out what's going on in the first quarter of any new novel that I start. My husband is also a writer, she says, and so I give him my drafts to read and he might read half of it and make a suggestion and then that sends me off in a completely different direction. Because this book began on the plantation, there was a lot of reading that I had to do about plantations and conditions in the Caribbean. I found a number of detailed and interesting books that focused on Barbados. So that's why she sets this story on a sugar plantation in Barbados. I am someone who writes many drafts. There are wildly differing scenes in each draft, where the first draft of my novel looks nothing like the last draft. For example, in this case, in the early draft, Wash was not an artist. And then, as I thought about it and wrote more, I determined that yes, he was. So that set me off reading books about science and marine life and marine watercolors. It was a real pleasure, I must admit, to read historical accounts of science discoveries and inventions of things like airships. And I was reading all this fascinating stuff while I was writing this book. When the novel Washington Black opens, it is the year 1830. And young George Washington Black, that is his full name, who narrates his own story, is a young slave, a young boy, on a Barbados sugar plantation. The name of the plantation is Faith. How ironic. Anyways, it's called Faith. And he, this young boy, is protected, or at least watched over, by an older woman whose name is Big Kit. And we're not sure of the relationship between Wash and Big Kit until the author reveals it to us at the end of the story. 
as a new master takes charge of the plantation, the old master dies and a new master takes over. The fear among the slaves is palpable. The accounts of the murders and the punishments and the random cruelties that the author puts into the beginning of this book are chilling and unsparing. The character Big Kit, and she's described as a very large woman physically as well as psychologically and emotionally, she she can see, and this is written into the story, and she tells it to young Wash, she can see no way out from the horrors of the slave circumstances except death. Death is the is this is will be the saving the saving of all of the slaves she tells she tells young wash death was a door or sorry young wash recounts that kit tells him death was a door i think that is what she wished me to understand she did not fear it she was of an ancient faith rooted in the high river lands of Africa. And in that faith, the dead were reborn, whole, back in their homelands to walk free again. So for Big Kit and for us, the reader, through the eyes, through the narration of Young Wash, the idea of dying is not a finality. It's an escape. It's it's the way that these slaves in their terrible lives in this world, the way that what they have to look forward to will be that when they die, they will be reborn, whole, free in their homeland once again. So that's all described in the opening scenes, in the opening chapters of the book. It's almost as if the reader can see what is coming. Barbados was under British rule, and because of that, slavery, which was abolished there, it abolished in Britain in 1833, was abolished in Barbados that year or the next year. So then this novel could be about the last days of the cruelty, of about what happens to a slave-owning family and to its slaves during the waning of the old order. But the novelist has other ideas. Essie Dugan, the novelist, the creator of the characters, is determined that the fate of Washington Black will not be dictated by history, that her novel instead will give him permission to soar above his circumstances. And he literally soars above his circumstances in a few, in a few descriptions in the book. And live a life that has been shaped by his imagination, his intelligence, and his rich sensibility. He is not a pawn in history, as a Dugian creates him, so much as a great noticer. He notices things and he describes them and he writes them down or he thinks them and we get we the readers get them through his thoughts as well as he can describe them. He can copy them because of his talent as an artist. He has an astonishing skill 
at capturing the atmosphere in a room matched only by his talent with pencil and sketchbook. At the beginning, it's with pencil, pencil and sketchbook. And as the book goes on, he graduates to watercolors and other, other artists, art, other artists' um, tools. He is a born artist and someone who attracts people to him. He is also a lost soul who moves through the novel as though in search of some distant, sorrowful notion of home. He's looking for home. And this lasts through the whole novel. In the opening section of the book, Washington's master, Erasmus Wilde, is visited by his brother Christopher, who takes on the name Titch throughout the story. And this is what young Washington has to call. Christopher tells him, call me Titch. That was my childhood nickname, which brings us back because if you remember, Essie Dugan said that where did she get the idea for writing when she was writing this book? From this real life story of a Titchburn, what happened to the Titchburn family um, when the son is lost at sea. So she cleverly, you know, brings this into her story. So the brother, Christopher Wilde, or Titch, he has plans, he has grandiose dreams. He's a scientist and he's a dreamer. He wants to build and test a flying machine. Remember, this is the 19th century. Flying machines were, were just in the initial stages of imagination. And he sees young Washington as a perfect piece of ballast for his experiment. That's why Wash, young Wash gets chosen by, by Titch, by Christopher, to be his assistant, because he's just the right physical size to act as ballast for this experiment in the creation of this flying machine. So thus, Wash moves from having to work in the fields in that plantation in Barbados to becoming something higher up in the hierarchy hierarchy of slavery. He begins to serve at table and gradually he becomes a kind of companion to Christopher, who becomes his master, listening to his theories and accompanying him each day to the hill where the flying machine will be assembled. However, in the tryout, in one of the tryouts of this machine, because Christopher is every day or whenever every few days is trying his machine out, there is an explosion. And in this explosion, young Wash's face is badly burned and he remains physically scarred for life. Of course, he's emotionally and psychologically scarred by slavery and by everything happens to him, but he bears, Essie Adugian cleverly writes this in at the beginning, he is is even physically scarred by this explosion. And of course, Christopher feels terrible about this. He hasn't meant to injure his young assistant, but this is what has happened. When the Wild brothers are joined by their cousin, the cousin comes from England to visit them on the Barbados plantation, there, is an, there, there are all kinds of interesting discussions. Washington gets to overhear the conversation among the three men, the two brothers, 
who are now in charge of the plantation. Their father, the original owner, has died, and the cousin has come to visit. And he listens to their conversations, and he thinks, this is really strange. Here are these white men who have everything they could want. They don't have to worry. They're free men, and they're wealthy. And yet they have this feeling, there's this feeling of estrangement from the world. They dislike one another. They are isolated and unhappy. And Wash notices this, and he comments upon it. He writes, well, he speaks, the author writes, something about them. And the whole situation, the gleaming beauty of the master's house, the refinements, the lazy elegance, made me feel a profound, unsettling sense of despair. And it's this uneasiness and sense of despair that he notices in this in these white men slowly as they spend more time together christopher the master begins to see young washington who is his slave in a new light as someone who possesses unusual talents who is deeply receptive a sort of wonder wonderkind christopher becomes intent on rescuing this young slave from his brother's plantation. And young Washington, in turn, begins to emerge even more strongly as more attention is paid to him. So you could call this a kind of portrait of the artist as a young man. And the young narrator of the book, Young Washington Black, he grows, his personality develops, and the author has him taken very seriously. She is willing to take great risks to release the story from any easy or predictable interpretations. She is not afraid to allow her character, young Washington Black, to have thoughts or knowledge that seem oddly beyond his command. And this is part of the ambiguous power that this character has, that our narrator character has in this story. This idea that owing to his unusual quickness and subtlety of mind, Washington can be trusted to know more than he realistically should. His place in this changing, dangerous world is not a fixed one. This book is not one of purely social realism. There's a combination of realism, social realism, but also magical realism in the picaresque journey that young Washington undertakes in the beginning together with his master and then on his own. This novel has many elements of a 19th century adventure story. Washington, when he needs to, makes his tale both gripping and credible. He writes as though the idea of escaping from the plantation by flying machine, as he and Christopher do, landing on a ship that rescues them, 
as they also do, and making their way up through the United States to Canada, where they find Christopher's father up in the Arctic. And Christopher has believed his father to be dead, but he's not, he's alive, is somehow part of how the world works. So, as I said, it's a kind of magical realism mixed with social realism. And there are moments when Adugian's writing actually soars, literally lifting the reader up off this earth and into somewhere into space where we have to suspend belief a little bit, but not so much as to make it totally unbelievable. For example, when Washington's experiences of the natural natural world are described in a prose that evokes beauty, and, and she has this lustrous, luminous way of describing the natural world through the character of young Washington, who is a budding scientist, so it makes sense. For example, as when Washington, young Washington goes diving, and how does he describe the world? How luminous the world was in the shallows. I could see all the golden light of the dying morning. I could see the debris in it stirring, coming alive. Purple, blue, gold cilia turned in the watery yellow shafts of light slicing down. In the gilded blur, I caught the flashing eyes of shrimp, alien and sinewy. This is how he describes his first trip diving off the coast of Nova Scotia. It's just, it's wonderful writing. Adugian is careful, nonetheless, that her flying machine of a novel not fly too freely up into the stratosphere. And how does she manage this? Not, it's not an easy task when you think of it. She confines Washington's versions of events when necessary to close and precise description. His mind does work plausibly. His prose can be very vivid, but it can also be measured, matching his scientific bent. And in Canada, he knows that as an escaped slave, even though slavery is not is 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 no longer um, is no longer legal in Canada, there is still a price on his head. So, despite the wonders that Washington experiences, he never loses a foreboding that he could be still captured, and this foreboding is rooted and fully realistic. Just as Christopher earlier in the book. Christopher, who was his owner and then his, his, his mentor and his friend, just as he was his enabler for escaping the plantation, in Canada, when he is no longer, when Christopher, when Titch has left him, and we're never sure if Titch is alive or no longer alive, he leaves, he abandons Washington. And young Washington, another one of the themes in the book is that Washington always has this feeling of looking for home, of searching, and home can also be home in someone who cares for him and loves him. At the beginning, it was Big Kit, then it was, then it was Titch, and then he leaves Big Kit because he leaves the plantation and then and then Titch leaves him and he doesn't know what happens to him. And he is there in Nova Scotia 
and he encounters there a father, a naturalist, and daughter, the father and daughter, who are living there. They're British, but they're living off the coast of, of Nova Scotia doing work because the naturalist father is there doing scientific research. And the daughter, his daughter is his assistant, kind of a, a copy of the titch and wash relationship. And he, he meets them. And they become not only his protectors, but they open up the study of the natural world for him. And so as he was to Christopher, Washington becomes a sort of colleague and collaborator to this father-daughter pair. And they teach him. And soon he, he himself is able to write with ease about specimens, about carbonic acid, about oxygen and photosynthesis. The world of science has been opened up to him. He also can describe, he can, he can draw it and he can do watercolors of it because he's very talented in that respect as well. Tentatively, a, a sort of romance begins between him and the daughter, this Tana Goth, a relationship that the author handles with such tenderness and reticence. It's beautifully rendered. And with the Goths, Washington makes his way to London, England. He accompanies them there to work on creating a new museum to display living creatures from the deep. <coughs> Sorry. No matter where he goes, he wash is both ready for the world, it seems, because he's going all over the world, literally, and yet still displaced. He is wounded by the loss of Big Kit, the mother figure he had as a young boy at the beginning, as well as by the loss, by the abandonment he feels, of Christopher of Titch Wilde, and he sets out to re-find him because he refuses to believe that he's not alive and he wants to find him because he's become separated from him. He has won freedom, our young Washington, freedom, physical freedom, literal freedom, but not from the experiences that he has been through. Psychologically, he is still not free. And because of his character, as Essie Dugan describes him, his awareness of everything, his hypersensitivity to the world, and his, his psychological sensitivity and caring, the world troubles him. Despite the outlandishness of his exploits, the stops on Washington's journey have none of the allegorical quality of the towns featured in Colson Whitehead's recent novel, The Underground Railroad, which I'm sure many of you have read. There is a, and Underground Railroad has really this magical realism quality to it. There is a meticulous realism to Edugian's rendering of each place in this very grand, old-fashioned 19th century story, which passes through London streets to North African desert with wonderful descriptions of all the places. The voice that Edugian has conjured for her narrator is articulate, precise, subject to fits of melancholy and, and emotional 
agony which Washington goes through as feeling abandoned and searching for those who have abandoned him, as well as ravishing transports into the glories of the natural world, like those description of the undersea world when he goes diving, or at the beginning, the descriptions of when he's flying in that flying machine experiment at the beginning with Titch. Washington is a 19th century man of science with a resume of travels and adventures to rival Jules Verne's creations or Charles Darwin's and a harrowing past that will not let him be. Our Washington, our Wash, should be happy. He has love towards the end of the book, a surrogate father, a young woman who is in love with him, engaging work, even though the prospect of not getting proper credit for it rankles him. Yet he cannot forget Titch Wilde and is searching, continuing to search for him. I am a free man now in possession of my own person, the 18-year-old Wash narrates. But while he has stepped out of the existential bondage, the slavery that he was born into, he has eluded the slave catcher, the bounty hunter, who really was after him and chasing after him in Canada, in Nova Scotia, and he eludes him in some wonderful scenes. And finally, He's outlived the institution of West Indies slavery itself, which Britain outlawed in 1833. He still really isn't free, free of his obsession with Titch and what happened to him. And did he abandon him? Something in me would not cease, Wash, our young narrator, writes, something would not cease a great lunging forward, a striving rooted as deeply in me as the thirst for water. And it's that striving, that delicate and often doomed power of human love that haunts the book Washington Black. You could say that it burns in the Black Sea of history like those jellyfish and crabs and shrimp that he described in the Nova Scotia Bay and in his diving expeditions. Collections of wisps in the darkness, but glorious all the same, no matter how much they sting. What Essie Adugin has done in this novel, Washington Black, is to complicate the historical narrative by focusing on one unique and self-led figure. That's our young narrator, Wash. And it is his presence in the book's pages, which is fierce and unsettling and leaves us readers thinking about this story long after it has ended. Thank you very much for listening. Keep well and see you, figuratively speaking, again next month.